Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is, we're going to sugarcoat it and say 1 o'clock, Friday afternoon, June 26, 2020, and it's time for the 76th trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, just got done with uh, our, what, it actually hadn't been that bad this week, about hour 48, 49, work this week, full-time job. Somehow, some way, we find our we find our way through muddling and improving, and Magic the Gathering, with an emphasis for me at least on playing at the local level. So, while we were away this week, well, Corset 2020 released to, I'm not going to say thunderous applause, but it at least finally released on Magic Arena. We finally have Magic Arena on Mac, which makes Brett unbelievably excited, and several other people I know. But more platforms, more new cards, potentially a fresh new standard format, although starting to look like we're just going to be playing against, still just going to be playing against a bunch of Growth Spiral Uro decks. But never fear, we're here today, instead of trying to muddle our way through standard the old-fashioned way, well, I say instead of the old-fashioned way, we're going to dive into a history lesson, again, similar to last week's, This archetype is a little bit more near and dear to my heart for a different reason. But we'll get to that reason in a minute. But what I want to talk about today, I need to kind of lay some groundwork. So for Fastlane this week, sorry, voice still going in and out. We haven't really figured it out yet. For Fastlane this week, I want to talk about what each main color that you typically see in aggressively slanted decks, specifically at aggro decks that are looking to kill your opponent as quickly as possible what, are the, what does each color bring to the table and it's actually a fairly simple ordeal to sort through and figure that part out every color has an identity that it brings at the low end of its curve and the top end of its curve and in the middle because we like things to be balanced as all things should be but <clears throat> First and foremost, kind of the the pillar of aggro, as it were, is red. What does red bring to the table? Red brings two things. Speed in the form of the haste mechanic, creatures that enter the battlefield and deal damage right away. You know, a mechanical emphasis from the aggressive side of red decks on being fast. You wanna be able to chip in a little bit early. You wanna be able to get a little bit extra. You want to be able to keep getting combat phases, whether directly through cards like Combat Celebrant that actually give you extra combat phases, or more commonly indirectly through cards that remove blockers, allowing you to keep maintaining productive combat phases. And by that token, red brings burn spells to the table. For a lot of people that have only experienced red aggro through the lens of modern, 
and pauper. Burn spells are just these things that go upstairs when you have enough of them and you kill them on turn three. You just play all bolts and your opponent dies. That's how you play red, right? Red aggro is a distinctive departure from that because you want your burn spells to clear a path for your creatures to keep getting in there and dealing damage. Creatures are the focus of an actual aggro deck. Like burn in modern and legacy and the like. The focal point is on maximizing the overall damage numbers of your deck. And you can even argue it's the same way for like the prowess decks in modern or the you know similar decks in pioneer. Even to an extent to the red deck in standard, your emphasis is on the largest amount of damage you can deal by the earliest turn. Whereas in red aggro, the idea is to just keep getting in for damage. Now you want your creatures to curve out. You want to be able to find spots in your mana curve to, to chip in, you know, clear a blocker and play a haste creature and go sideways and get in for more damage. But the burn spells in red aggro versus the burn spells in a burn deck do two different jobs. And in a red aggro deck, they're clearing a path so your small kind of mopey red creatures keep smacking your opponent in the face. The end result is still largely the same amount of damage being dealt, but it's doing so in a way that's a little bit more difficult for your opponent to counteract permanently. I.e. in a burn deck, if everything's going upstairs, they can equate their life gain to a number of cards, whereas if your burn spell is clearing out blockers and your goal is to keep attacking, well now their life gain takes on a different kind of resource evaluation. Is it is a card like Revitalize actually worth two cards if your opponent's not planning to bolt your face unless you're at exactly three? That's the rub. Like, Revitalize is draw a card, gain three life, so you can, like, effectively negate one combat phase for my Goblin Chain Whirler, but that's not the same thing as getting a whole extra card like you do against a burn deck. Hope that makes sense to some level. The second color that is typically associated with the deck I'm going to be talking about today is white. And what white brings to the table for aggro is very simple. White brings numbers. White brings the forces. White brings the boys, the girls, the everything in between. All the creatures. That's what white brings to the table. You just bring a smattering of low curve either efficient creatures or just low curve multiple body cards. A really good example is some of the variations on like the tokens decks over the years. Those are only possible because of white's ability to generate a lot of creatures. You know, curving raise the alarm or uh, <clears throat> what is it? Raise the alarm or the uh, we'll just keep using raise the alarm. But curving raise the alarm into spectral procession makes a lot of bodies. So if you curve, raise the alarm into Spectral Procession into a, into an effect that pumps the whole team. Benelish Marshall, Ajani, Goldmane, Glorious Anthem, whatever. 
intangible virtue if you want to go like all the way in on tokens I don't recommend it but you can what that brings to the table is the ability to put a lot of bodies on the table and that from a counterplay perspective forces your opponent to have specific types of removal they need to have board clears they can't get you with spot removal when their spot removal isn't trading for a whole card that's the idea behind being a base white aggro deck. You want to put so many things on the table that the only way your opponent can catch up is to kill everything. In addition, white brings unconditional removal. It's typically more expensive, but where burn spells are capped at the number of toughness points an opposing creature has, a card like Path to Exile doesn't care. Just get it out of here. A card like Banishing Light, a card like uh, Conclave Tribunal, those cards don't care how big your thing is. It's gone. Find another way to crawl back into the game. And then the last major color that's typically associated with the archetype I'm going to be talking about today is green. And green... Let's just say green does not is not very subtle about what it brings to the table. When you build a base green aggro deck, you are asking one all-important, all-encompassing question. Where's the beef? All your creatures are some chunky boys. You want some big, stupid animals when you're playing green decks. That is your mission in life as a green aggro deck. Power and toughness for mana cost. You know, cards like Leatherback Bayloth, Steel Leaf Champion, um, Hunted Wumpus. Cards that are just really, really big for the amount of mana you're investing into them. So where red brings speed, white brings numbers, green... Green is the muscle to back it up. Green redefines what your weight class is. And obviously the inner the intermixing between these colors is where a lot of the magic happens. Pardon the pun. Don't pardon the pun. That was bad. I, I apologize. <laughs> but the interplay between these colors is where the, the, the magic happens because, for example, a Boros deck tends to be very fast and swarm in large numbers fairly easily. You tend to be able to get on the board, get on the board quickly, deal your opponent a lot of damage, and then chip in for the last couple of points with burn. It plays very much like a red aggro deck, but you're just able to be a little bit more insulated against spot removal. A gruel aggro deck tends to be very fast, but also fairly big. Look no further than standard, where you're playing creatures like uh, Zertai Goblin, Gruel Spellbreaker, Pelt Collector, Questing Beast, Lovestruck Beast, like... Just playing the swole, the swole gang. Got that swole power. Reading up on your swolely Bible. <laughs> or, you know, Selesnia, you tend to mix your, your white base aggro deck, which wants to put a lot of bodies on the table and make them all bigger. Well, green's real good at making creatures bigger. And then they're going to start a little bit bigger to begin with. So you're all about strength and numbers. Not strength and numbers, strength and numbers. 
And I tell you all of that because the deck I want to talk about today, as we slide over, we get ready to slow things down. We're getting into the slow lane. We're going to talk about a zoo. This is one of Magic's oldest, most iconic archetypes. It's named for the fact that it tends to feature an utter menagerie of creature types. You just play like whatever creature fits the curve. There is no over, overarching theme. You are focused as an aggro deck on one thing and one thing only, efficiency. You want the most efficient creatures at every point in your curve, depending on how high your curve goes. And you want the most efficient methods of clearing out blockers so that set efficient creatures can keep hitting your opponent in the face. That is, by and large, the goal of any effective zoo deck. The idea being to serve as almost a big aggro deck. You want to be able to put bodies on the table that outclass the smaller decks like the the mono red, the mono white. The you, know, you want to be able to force your opponent to need multiple cards to remove your creatures, while at the same time your creatures chunk out massive bites out of their life total. That's the goal for Zoo, or at least it used to be. In recent years, Zoo has kind of given way to a lot of different identities that still call themselves Zoo decks. So the goal for today is to try to dispel some of the, the myth, the misinformation, and just kind of establish a timeline of what it is that makes a Zoo deck a Zoo deck. And to start with, we're going to go back to the beginning. See, early in Magic's history, decks were a little bit less, shall we say, refined than they are now. And decks like Brian Weissman's The Deck, you know, decks that were designed to take over the game in the middle of it and then ride that advantage till the end, were everywhere. Uh, specifically after Weissman himself did what he did at the first World Championships or whenever it was. Uh, but decks were designed around the idea that the early game didn't matter as long as you were hitting your land drops. You could catch up with the Wrath of God. You would dominate with cards like Ancestral Recall and Time Walk. Be able to land a card like Disrupting Scepter or Sarah Angel and use that card to run your opponent out of time and resources eventually. Your goal as a, as a pilot of these kinds of decks was to try to string the game along until the late game. The early game didn't matter to you because by and large, at the time, the early game wasn't very powerful. Players were more interested in playing, you know, Armageddon and Arnhem Gen. Decks that wanted to just, you know, they wanted to beat, everybody wanted to beat up on creatures, but they did it in kind of the most counterproductive way, thinking about it now. By modern deck building conventions, the decks of the time were just slow. 
And it was a combination of the lack of power of creatures and the overwhelming majority of the power being controlled by the spells that didn't punish these players for doing that. Except at the 1994 World Championship, a player by the name of Bertrand Lestrie brought this weird deck to the form brought this weird deck to the table that featured Kurt Ape and Lightning Bolt and Chain Lightning as kind of the strategic core. Kurt Ape being by and large the most efficient creature in magic at the time as a 2-3 for one mana. Nowadays a 2-3 for one mana would barely see play. <laughs> as evidenced by how things have gone the last couple of years. But, you know, it, it was a it was a groundbreaking at the time. A 2-3 for 1 mana. Buoyed by 8 cards that deal 3 damage. The green was there ostensibly to make Curdate better. And, I mean, beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot of incentive to play green cards. Maybe against other creature decks you would sideboard into Urnum Gen. Just because it would be so big that your opponent couldn't do anything about it. And it was just... It, it was a card that they had to spend multiple burn spells to kill. But by and large, your goal as this deck was to just get down an early card ape. And be beating your opponent's face in while they were hitting land drops. To wait to cast Wrath of God. And they really didn't want to wait and cast Wrath of God to trade with your one mana 2-3. It didn't feel very good. So that thing would chunk out six to eight damage before your opponent would do anything about it. And if they did, it'd be a Swords to Plowshares. And you play another one. And they do, you know. The key difference between this one and the kind of the identity we've come to know and love as Zoo today was the fact that this deck splashed blue rather than white because, I mean, old blue cards were broken. This was a deck that had access to Time Walk, Ancestral Recall, uh, Serendipifreet, Counterspell, Mana Drain, like, lots of busted magic cards were available to this, this archetype way, way, way back. You also had the Mana Accelerators, which were another reason that aggressive decks kind of didn't matter. Decks built around one and two mana creatures were, I mean, for lack of a better term, they were laughable. Why would I play one and two mana creatures when I'm already jumping to like three to five mana on turn one? And the answer is simpler than you think. If you open on Taiga Mox Sapphire and Sapphire casts Ancestral Recall, you draw three, you cast Curd Ape, and your hand is second Curd Ape, double Bolt, like somebody's dying while they're trying to set up Wrath of Gods and Disrupting Scepters and all these other little prison elements. These mopey little Curd Apes are bashing their teeth in. To say nothing of doing, you know, if you get the nut drawn, you have your lotus in your hand and you have the time walk and you're just like recall, lotus, drop, 
drop triple curd eight, mox, time walk, attack for six. Like, come on, that's so much damage early in the game. Now your opponent's hard-pressed to catch up. They're more interested in stopping the channel and fireball combination, which was also in the deck, by the way. Now, some, some amount of the time, your opponent might go first. They might... Uh, they might jam a Serendipifreed on the board, and then you get them in their upkeep with Channel and Fireball. <laughs> so, like, by and large, the very first zoo deck kind of laid the groundwork. The idea of playing cheap creatures, cheap burn spells, and just kind of trying to take advantage as best they could of what the colors they were playing had to offer. Obviously, it was a different era of magic. And it was an era that got further punished later on after the separation of Type 1 and Type 2, or what eventually became Vintage and Standard, when our first Standard Red deck made its breakthrough performance. See, again, for a long time, magic decks were built around the idea that as long as you started doing meaningful stuff on turn four, you were going to be fine. And then along comes the deck that legitimized aggro, the deck known as Sly. And this is a little bit of a departure from what we're talking about, but it's important to establish like the deck building foundation for Zoo before we really get to talk about Zoo. Sly was unique because it was the first deck where you were focused on using all of your mana every single turn. And it's a novel concept. It's, it's a, a concept we take for granted now. But it was an unbelievably novel concept at the time. To play not quite powerful cards... We're talking about cards like Goblin Balloon Brigade. We're talking about Iron Claw Orcs. We're talking about I don't even remember what the three drops were. I mean, we're talking about you know creatures with a drawback or creatures that aren't that don't hit very hard. You know, Mon's Goblin Raiders would have been great in the original slide deck. Why? Because it was a one-mana creature. Like, the original slide deck played 13 one-mana creatures. Because they wanted to be really sure every single game that they opened, land, creature, pass turn. They wanted to be able to put the same amount of pressure on every single game based on the cards they kept in their opening hand. That was the beauty of Sly in those early days. Because, again, other decks were interested in waiting until they got to 4 mana. Well, if your opponent waits until they get to 4 mana to drop Artem Gen, and then the next turn they try to drop Armageddon, they might die. Because, by the, you know, you'll... Goblin Balloon Brigade on one, Iron Claw Orcs on two. 
Mons Goblin Raiders plus Iron Claw Orcs on three. Attacking all the way through. When your opponent slams down the Urnum Gen on four, you swing into it anyway. They declare a block, they block two. You get in for four more. You bolt, bolt, chain lightning, they're probably dead. Like, that was the appeal to Sly. The ability to just do, it was one of the first decks that reliably did the same thing every game as the aggressor in a matchup. And the mana curve theory was a big part of it. It featured, it was also the, one of the first ones to really feature burn spells as removal. With the added bonus of going upstairs to close the game out. And it introduced the idea of getting under decks that didn't have counter spells. You know, Urnumgeddon, you know, blue, uh, blue-white control decks that were playing a bunch of Wrath Effects. These creatures seem awful and you don't want to trade whole cards for them. But then you're at eight and they've got lethal on the board and you kind of have to. So it just it just created this whole new tension in deck building. It it put it was one of the first ones to really serve as the deck building check on the rest of the format that it was played against. And it was finally the one that gave aggro a legitimate seat at the deck building table. Because to that point, outside of Lestrie's performance at Worlds 94, red aggressive decks were largely considered a laughing stock of high level magic. You needed to play these long, drawn out, elegant games, or you were just like, you were nobody. Who, why did you matter? And then, you know. What's your plan? Well, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that brings us to my first exposure to Zoo as an archetype. And it was consequently my first exposure to competitive magic. I ended up having to go back and look at older stuff down the line. It was the spring or the, the winter of 2006. It was February 2006. Guild Pact was the most released or most recently released set in Magic. And with it came Stomping Ground to go alongside Sacred Foundry and Temple Garden, which gave aggressive decks the ability to be three colors. Because not only did we have all the shock lands in standard, we had all the pain lands in standard. All ten of them. So, depending on how badly you were willing to hurt yourself, you could make your mana base do a lot of wild and crazy things. And it began for me, like the, the realization of a lot of these things, began watching Craig Jones play Pro Tour Honolulu in 2006. I had read his, uh, his bio going into it and talking about how he believed he was cursed because he would, at the last two or three events before he would have a really really strong day one and then the wheels would fall off on day two 
you know, he'd seven and one, eight and no day one, and then one three or you know, one four oh five day two and be done. So I was rooting for him. I always love a good underdog story. And then we got to watch him over the course of this tournament just beat up on all these decks that were going over, that were playing these powerful cards that I was tired of losing to at home. I was tired of getting bodied by Loxodon Hierarch. I was tired of getting out advantaged by Phyrexian Arena. I was tired of getting beaten up by Wrath Effects. And then I watched Craig with his deck full of Savannah Lions and Isamaru Hound of Kondas and um, Watch Wolves and Scab Clan Maulers. And I said, okay, I'm paying attention. You have my attention. And what this deck did is it brought Sly Principles to the original Lestrizu deck. Which is to say, we played cheap creatures, burn spells as removal, and an overall very, very low mana curve. Uh, Craig Jones's deck only played up to three mana in the main deck with a couple of four drops in the sideboard for the mirror to be able to just go a little bit bigger than your opponent could muster. <clears throat> I think originally that's, well, yeah. and when I went back and looked at it, you know, when Craig did his tournament report and everything leading in, he said a lot of the issue and the reason he ended up defaulting to this list was that the players at the Honolulu, the now infamous Honolulu Beach House had locked in on the black, the black green, white mid-range deck really early in their process. And that gave the aggro deck builders a really clear target as to what they needed to be able to beat. <clears throat> Which was cards like Loxodon Hierarch, Congregation at Dawn to load them on top of the deck, Mortify, Pillory of the Sleepless, you know. They were interested in beating you up. They wanted to body you through the middle of the game with their individually powerful magic cards. <sighs> Castigate would take key cards out of your hand. Castigate essentially being an Orzhov Thought Erasure. You trade Surveil for the ability to exile the card you take. And a blue mana for a white mana. That was the difference between Castigate and Thought Erasure. But it gets more interesting from there. Again, Sly Principles, you had a strict mana curve. I think it was 10 one drops, 10 two drops, and uh, three three drops. But notably, he focused on efficiency, raw power and toughness efficiency at the low end of the curve. But then as he went further up, the focus became utility. Cards like Burning Tree Shaman were not chosen because they had the, the most power and toughness for three mana in those three colors. Burning Tree Shaman was chosen because a card like Pyromatics could slowly pick your board apart in the mid-game, but not if your opponent's at five and you have a Burning Tree Shaman on the board. 
you know, it, it was a card that put a beating on the heartbeat combo deck that existed and that I ended up building after the tournament because I realized I had most of the cards. It was a card that was chosen because it was very good against what we needed to be. You know, it would put a beating on anything trying to abuse Sensei's Divining Top. It would put a beating on anything looking to abuse Vidugazi the City Tree, Glare of Subdual, so on and so forth. You just, okay, that's cool. You made a token, you're tapping my creature down, but now you're taking two. <clears throat> oh, you transmuted that card. Take one. Do anything is it. Take one. Like, that's what we're in for. And then 10th Street Hooligan was a nod to the fact that there were powerful artifacts in the format. Kami of Ancient Law was a nod to the fact that a lot of players were looking to bring Phyrexian Arena, Debtor's Knell, and uh, even cards like Greater Good to the table. Kami of Ancient Law could trade itself for any of those more expensive magic cards. Faith's Fetters was another one. Like, how do these aggro decks ever beat? You know, Loxodon Hierarch into Faith's Fetters. We just gain eight life and neutralize your creatures. Well, not if you've been attacked for six beforehand. Not if you try to Faith's Fetter their creatures and they just kill your Faith's Fetter. You know, that was the, the underlying principle behind the Craig Jones Zoo deck. And in addition, there was the idea of the 20-20-20 split. Now, Craig ended up mucking those numbers around a little bit because there weren't 20 burn spells, but he tried to stick as close to that number as possible. In Craig's case, he played, I think it was, it was 22 lands, 20 creatures, and 18 burn spells. There was four each of Volcanic Hammer, Lightning Helix, Shock, and Char, and then two copies of Flames of the Bloodhand. Now, bear in mind, this was a deck that was happy to pay three mana to deal four damage to any target and then take two more damage back to its own face. Because four damage is a lot when you're playing that many burn spells. Your Savannah Lions and Curd Apes and uh, Isamarus do a wonderful job of bludgeoning your opponent to death while you're clearing away their two and three mana creatures. You know, one of the other more popular aggro decks coming into that weekend was Hand in Hand, which was a black-white aggro deck that featured Hand of Cruelty and Hand of... Uh, Honor, two mana, two two, first strike, Bushido Samurai. That had protection essentially from each other. One had protection from white, one had protection from black. <clears throat> Neither one of them had protection from red. So, I mean, shock still kills those things. Tesa Orzov Scion is like you're trading, trading bodies aggressively on the board payoff. If she dies to those lightning helixes and volcanic hammers. And you just take three more. Watch Wolf was a 3-3 three, three for three. Just a vanilla 3-3 three, three for three. 
Didn't need any other abilities. We have a creature in standard that's a two mana, two two, that is either a haste or becomes a three three. Nobody likes that card. Watch Wolf was an all star in that standard format because it was the best raw efficiency definition of power and toughness for the mana cost. So it was metagamed by and large to beat up on what many perceived to be the best decks going into the weekend. They figured several people would try to bring the Katsuhiro Mori Gazi Glare deck. They knew everybody was bringing that Beach House mid-range deck and they knew a lot of people were going to be building like sort of anti-meta decks to to prey specifically on the beach house deck a notable one and well beloved in the history of magic is owling mine which just gets absolutely obliterated by zoo because the last thing you want to do when you're playing against a deck that plays 18 burn spells is let them draw more cards a real good idea. Let's let you find the way you're going to kill me faster. It ended up taking second place at the event, and then it ended up over the summer being one of the most popular decks in standard. The combination of efficient beaters, utility creatures that did a good job fighting the fights about the, the powerful cards that could swing either creature mirrors or actual matchups efficient burn spells to clear blockers it just it did a really good job of demonstrating to 16 year old me <clears throat> just what aggro magic should be about Well, then we had the extended evolution of it. The, for those of you who don't know, extended was the format that predated modern. And it was seven years of magic, and then it rotated every third year. So standard rotated every year, extended rotated every three years. And when it did, it would take three years off the format with it when it left. Well, one of the first examples of the style of deck that Zoo ended up becoming in Extended was uh, Suyoshi Fujita at the 2005 World Championships. I had to go back and look it up. Uh, Suyoshi Fujita built Boros Deck Wins. And a lot of the same principles are here. The only key difference is obviously Fujita did not splash for Kurt Ape and Watch Wolf. Instead, Fujita played Savannah Lions and Ismarus and married them to aggressive red two drops with access to Lightning Helix and Shock and Volcanic Hammer and killed people. Notably, it was one of the first aggro decks to use the concept of playing fetch lands and shock lands together where it didn't care how low its own life total went as long as its mana was perfect because if its mana was perfect, it was going to kill you. And you know, when you're playing a deck that has access to Lightning Helix, 
char. I guess I didn't have access to char. I had access to lightning helix and volcanic hammer and shock. In addition to having access to Savannah Lions, Isamaru, Hound of Conda, Goblin Legionnaire, you know, a litany of not powerful cards, but at least efficient cards. And it was one of the few that was able to, you know, really take advantage of fetch plus shock mana basis. You have a deck that has the ability to define, come to define a format. Obviously, once we got more cards, players started experimenting, more fetch lands, less fetchable targets, more colors, and that all kind of came to a head with the printing of Shards of Alara when we got a little creature by the name of Wild Nicotl. <clears throat> Wild Nicotl was the thing I could never quit. Uh, Wild Nakato being a one mana, one one that gets plus one, plus one if you control a plains, and plus one, plus one if you control a forest. So it's a three, three for one in this deck. I hope we're on the same page here. But with the printing of Wild Nakato and the existence in the extended format at the time, of Tribal Flames and, and uh, Gaia's Might. Tribal Flames is X damage to any target, where X is the number of basic land types among lands you control. Well, we just got the shock lands. So Raph Levy put two and two together and made five. <laughs> <sighs> Excuse me. It allowed the deck to streamline and be even more about its creatures because it didn't have to play a lot of burn spells to get the same effect. Tribal Flames was worth a lightning bolt and a shock for the mana cost of both put together. Gaia's Might was worth more than any one mana burn spell you had in the, in the format as long as you were playing enough creatures in the right lands to support it. So you started seeing five color zoo decks popping up. Now, Bear in mind, this was also about the time players started to realize you could play Burn. You know, we got Lightning Bolt in, in Extended. Not terribly long after. And Lightning Bolt really came to help define things. Really painted a nice clear picture about what the format was. And then we had uh, Tomoharu Saito, who did the most public, the largest amount of public work on a single deck I have ever seen. Saito seemed to release a new zoo list every week for what felt like three months, making minor changes every time, but he was able to write a full article about it. Why he made the changes, what that did to his matchups. Uh, what that did to the mirror against the old version of the deck and why he was still playing Zoo. And it ended up, it ended up by the end of it, he was, he was seemingly coming out with a new list every week with the express purpose of beating the one he'd put out the last week that also did really well. And 
and it was it was a thing of beauty watching someone that high profile put in the effort publicly to master one deck as opposed to trying to jump from best deck to best deck and then 2009 we had the great schism and I call it the Great Schism because this is where the identity of Zoo started to get muddled up. It started to get lost to the pages of history. Brian Kibler and Ben Rubin were high-profile, very, very good professional Magic players. Brian Kibler is still currently a very good, very, very productive Hearthstone professional that occasionally comes and does Magic coverage for Wizards of the Coast. But Kibler is in the Hall of Fame for very good reason. He's a very good deck builder, very good magic player. But the thing that makes Kibler uh, an all-time great is not just how good he was or how good he was at building decks. It's the, the way he carried himself while he did it. Brian Kibler is the world's biggest, if we're using the classic magic psychographics, Brian Kibler's the world's biggest Timmy. Brian Kibler loved bashing an opponent to death with giant creatures. You know, one of his most notable moments was strapping Armadillo Cloak onto Rith the Awakener at a Pro Tour. Like, come on. Well, Kibler wanted, realized going into, I can't remember what the event was. I didn't, I did the research, but I didn't go far enough back to actually figure out what the event was. But going into the event, I think it was either a Grand Prix or a Pro Tour. Kibler wanted an aggro deck that beat other aggro decks. Reasoning that if you had an aggressive deck, you could beat up on combo decks or control decks that stumbled. But he wanted an aggro deck that beat the other ones so that he would have an edge against what everybody else, what he perceived everyone else would be bringing to the table. And he reasoned that Zoo was the best aggro shell, so he wanted to build his Zoo deck to beat the other Zoo decks. So this was the first one to feature one-drop mana accelerators. Cards like Noble Hierarch. Playing one-drop mana accelerators that went into more powerful two and three mana creatures allowed them to outmuscle most of their, their Zoo mirrors. They also added the, the innovation. This was, bear in mind, this was after the printing of Zendikar. The one-two punch of one card that is, is reasonable in modern and one card that's banned in modern now in Grove of the Burn Willows and Punishing Fire, which does an absolute number on your creature matchups. Punishing Fire kills just about everything. If you're on the play, you play your Wild Nacatl, they play their Wild Nacatl, you go land drop, punishing fire yours, attack for three, they're way back on the back foot now. Now they've got to catch up. It's really awkward for them. Well, they might jam a Tarmogoyf down, or they might jam a, you know, they might jam another Nacatl plus a Bolt for yours. That's fine. Because now I can grow over the burn willows. 
and buy my punishing fire back. Maybe I kill your creature. Maybe you went Tarmogoyf. Well, now I can go over the burn willows, buy it back, kill it again. It created an engine in the, within the deck that gave it the premise of the control role in the aggro matchups. Because you didn't really care how high their life total was as long as it didn't get too crazy. Because your creatures, by and large, would outmuscle theirs. A card like Knight of the Reliquary, as the game goes long, gets so big it doesn't matter if your opponent gains four or five life over the course of the game. They're going to take some of it back off of themselves with these Fetchland, Shockland mana bases. And you're going to take plenty of it back off of them with cards like Knight of the Reliquary and Wild Nicotle. Essentially what Kibler did is he stripped down a lot of the, the supporting cast and instead of replacing it with better versions of the same thing, Kibler and Rubin sat down and they decided they wanted to replace it with things that the mirror couldn't remove profitably. One of the key tenets for Zoo is having burn spells as removal. And if your burn spells can't kill their creatures, now you're just a bad burn deck. And then in a classic Brian Kibler stroke of genius, he decided to up the ante and just dominate all the creature opponents he played by playing Baneslayer Angel. <laughs> because... What shuts the door faster when you're in an aggro mirror and both of you are trading resources? And yeah, you're kind of there on the board, but you gotta, you're a little bit ahead, but things are similar. You're in a race. You know what card's really good when you're racing? A 5 5 flying first strike lifelink. Turns out that card's really, really good when you're racing. And this deck came to redefine the last extended format. Because it did what very few other decks were willing to do. Killed its darlings. You know, cards like Lightning Helix didn't make the cut in Ruben Zoo. You needed unconditional removal. You needed cards that your opponent wasn't they, they couldn't kill reliably. They couldn't trade with with one creature in combat. And it created the the first real mid-range presence I'd seen in Extended in a long time. Yeah, we had stuff like the Death Cloud deck. We had various forms of the rock. But while those decks were frustrating, they were generally more of a nuisance than they were a, a pillar of that format. Well, then come Pro Tour Austin, I think it was 2009, uh, fall of 2009, Kibler had to beat his own creation. Because they were playing this event. Or was it? No, it was Amsterdam. It was Pro Tour Amsterdam. That's what it was. Kibler and Brad Nelson sat down and decided they needed to beat, you know, they were going to metagame, they were going to beat this, this new field that they had created. 
And what Kibler did here is something we can all learn a lesson from. Kibler applied zoo templating, i.e. cheap aggressive creatures, make it hard for your opponent to use their, their removal against your creatures, and buoy your creatures with efficient ways to clear blockers. He applied that templating to a black-green-white aggro deck. Obviously, you can't play burn in black-green-white. So instead, what Kibler, what what Brad and Kibler did is they played cards like Thoughtseize, Nameless Inversion, Duress. They went into disruption because the field had become very combo-heavy in the face of what Ruben Zoo had done to a lot of the aggro decks. Ruben Zoo had kind of redefined itself as the best aggro deck because it kind of squeezed out all the other aggro, but in exchange, it was not very good against combo. It was a big beatdown deck, and you just, like, you still have draws that can kill them quickly, but you don't do it reliably. <laughs> and what he did here was a, just a, th a stroke of genius because... I don't know who goes into a format where you've got access to cards like Lightning Bolt, you got access to cards like uh, Glimpse of Nature, you've got access to cards like uh, Thopter Foundry and Sword of the Meek, you've got, you know, all of these things that were utterly dominant in that extended format. And you look at that and say, I want to play Treefolk Harbingers and Doran the Siege Tower. And there's a really good reason why why they did this. Treefall Carbinger has three toughness. Doran the Siege Tower has five toughness. Why is that important? Well, that means if you Treefall Carbinger on the draw, they can't punishing fire it. It's just going to live through it. If they do Punishing Fire it, whatever. You probably don't block. <laughs> but that turns Punishing Fire into a bad burn spell instead of an efficient removal engine that machine guns down your small creatures. Doran having five toughness means they can't Punishing Fire it twice and get it off the board. They can't spend four mana on the play to deal with your three drop. Nameless Inversion was really, really good against the Baneslayer Angel mirror. Because with Doran on the table, Baneslayer Angel, you could shrink with Nameless Inversion, which you could go get with Treefolk Harbinger, load it up on top of your deck, draw it, cast it on the Baneslayer Angel in the middle of combat when she's blocking Doran, shrink her toughness, which means she only deals two damage in first strike. Doran just beats on over. And then you combine black disruption with the capacity for a natural turn four kill. You know, turn one Harbinger, load up another one. Turn two, Harbinger, load up Doran. Turn three, Doran, attack for six. Turn four, 
attack for 11. And a lot of Daxon Extended started on fetching the shock. If you're starting on fetching the shock, you're going to die. Because you're going to start the game at 17, and that's how many points of damage this deck deals by turn 4. If it's not interrupted at all. And you can interrupt them along the way with your own thought sees, duress, whatever. It was a, just an utter masterstroke of deck building to apply the theory for Zoo. Playing cheap, aggressive creatures. But you wanted a little bit more muscle. You wanted to blank your opponent's removal from their Zoo deck while keeping your elements of interaction live. And that brings us to today. In M21 and Corset 2021, we are getting several cards that could be pillars for zoo-style decks in Standard. First of all, Fast Aggro in general could benefit from more burn and a lower mana curve. These decks that are playing, you know, four Anax and four Bonecrusher Giants and four Embercleaves and four Torbrands, No wonder you're getting bodied by these control decks. You just can't cast your spells fast enough. I know there's not great options at one and two mana in monocolored decks. But if you start mixing and matching colors, it might be possible to do a better job getting under people. A deck like the Mardu Knights deck is still something I really like. I really wish it had better mana. Yeah, you know, I wish we had another set of untapped duels in standard, but we, we got what we got. The other thing is like just playing more burn spells. I mentioned char earlier for a reason. If you are a base red aggro deck that's splashing a second, maybe even a third color, you can do a whole lot worse than slaying fire as a way to close the game out. I don't know if anyone's told you, but four damage is still four damage. We still have cards like Skewer the Critics in Standard. Light Up the Stage is still the most powerful card draw spell Red's ever gotten. And we're using it to draw three drop creatures, four drop creatures, and six drop equipments. That card is at its most powerful when you are drawing more burn spells and more creatures that you can cast. Light up the stages at its most powerful when you cast the cards you draw off of it. Second, bigger, more card advantage conscious aggro decks can also exist. We already had cards like Bone Crusher Giant, Love Struck Beast, Questing Beast, uh, Skargan Hellkite, you know, all these big, dumb red and green things we've been trying to do. But now we get Baneslayer Angel. Now we get uh, Terror of Mount Velas. I think it is the new, uh, the new dragon from M21. 
You can put a lot of power and toughness on the table. Ember Cleave is still a haymaker your opponent has to respect because when you're playing this many creatures that are this big, your opponent has to literally fear death every time you declare attacks. So treating your zoo deck that you may want to build in standard kind of like Naya Monsters, where you're playing, you know, six-ish creatures at two mana to jump you ahead in mana to make sure you can cast your spells on time. Or, you know, you Paradise Druid on two, Questing Beast on three, Baneslayer Angel on four because we've got Shock Lands and other lands in standard right now. To say nothing of because of the mana acceleration, you can fit some tap lands into your curve. Like there's just a lot available to an aggro deck that wants to still be really aggressive, but feature more powerful cards. And then last but not least, available as sort of a bridge between fast zoo or big zoo, we have the new build-around in Conclave Mentor that is the hardened scales in Selesnya colors. It's a green and a white for 2-2. Two, two. And adds an extra plus one, plus one counter to creatures that get one. Well, we already have stuff in standard that plays really, really well with that thing. We have Pelt Collector, first and foremost. Pelt Collector on one and to Mentor on two is a 3-3 Pelt Collector attacking. Well, then on turn three, you play Tap Land Zerta Goblin as a 4-4 because it enters with a plus one, plus one counter, and then it gets another one. So it enters as a 4-4, which puts two more counters on Pelt Collector. You smack for five. Now they have to Wrath, but if they... Definite Clarion, the only thing they kill is the Mentor. If they Storm's Wrath, they still don't kill the Pelt Collector. Like, and then to say nothing of Gruul Spellbreaker, you know, come down, put two counters on your three mana, three, three, trample, hexproof on my turn. There's my three drop five five trample. That seems really good. And it doesn't die to Doomblade on my own turn. You have to spend part of your turn to remove it. So you're not developing your core strategy along the way, unless your core strategy is what the Croxa deck is and killing creatures. But the basic premise behind this is it has the ability to be big because of the starts involving Pelt Collector and Mentor and using the Riot creatures to go swole. But it also still has access to the fastest 1, 2, 3, 4 sequence in Standard where you Pelt Collector into 2, 2, Haste, Zerta, or Robber of the Rich, into 3, 3, Haste, Spellbreaker, into 4, 4, Haste, Questing Beast, and just kill them. Notably, the only white card I'm talking about playing to this point is the Conclave Mentor. Do I think it's worth splashing? Yes. Because it also opens you up to uh, Justice Strike as a removal spell against cards like Baneslayer Angel or Opposing Questing Beasts. 
You also get to play your own Baneslayer Angels after sideboard. Uh, Domri's Ambush is very good with the Conclave Mentor putting two counters on something before you deal damage. You know, the idea being that it, it plays out similar to the Snakes and Ladders decks from last year, from Amonkhet, uh, from Kaladesh Amonkhet Ixalan Standard, wherein you get big, like you, you put a lot of power and toughness on the table and you just kind of tell your opponent they have to do something about it. There are builds that are really all in on that right now. I don't love them. That doesn't mean I don't think they have value. So, at the end of the day, like, that's the goal, right? Just the, the whole theory behind Zoo is to play a deck that is efficient at every point of the mana curve it wants to play at. Efficient with threats, efficient with removal, and overall presents a clear, concise game plan. Not these blitz decks that people are calling Zoo in Modern and Pioneer. Blitz is a different deck than Zoo. I want to build Zoo. Because for me, that's one of the, one of the more intriguing exercises in deck building I've ever done. I'm going to revisit it again. I don't know which build I'm going to go with. Probably the one where I already have the most cards, so I don't have to dump a bunch of wild cards into it. But you get what I'm driving at. But I'm not driving anymore because I'm in the driveway. So that's going to wrap it up for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the episode. you got questions, comments, concerns, find me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, I'm Adam Spain. Or you can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. Open invite, send a request. We'll give it a shot. While you're perusing the web, if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show and all the major pieces of content I put out are always going to be free. But if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, please feel free to show your support. And last but not least, never ever least, it's time for, come on, hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. And we didn't get as many as we normally do, but that's okay. Let's see. Okay, that's where I ended the last one. So the first one I got was from Brian Sharp who said, building an EDH deck just got harder, or at least it will scale up the number, scale with the number of opponents. Namely, the card in question was Branching Evolution from Jumpstart, which is hardened scales, but scaled up, because puns, I love it. It's hardened scales, but it adds another counter. So every time you, get, you add a plus one, plus one counter, you add two of them, or twice that many. Instead of adding one extra, you add twice that many. So, that's kind of bananas. Or whatever snakes eat. <laughs> Emma Partlow says, you could say next week's article is going to be epic. 
and the image is enduring ideal in nine lives, and I wholeheartedly endorse whatever is about to happen here. <laughs> uh, enduring ideal is one of my one of my old uh, nostalgia buttons. I had a friend that used to play a shrines deck built around enduring ideal. He would play a bunch of shrines and mana acceleration early in the game to fairly reasonably control the board, use wrath effects to reset, and then dominate the game by resolving enduring ideal to just go get you know additional shrines every turn. The one caveat is his deck was really, really reliant around mirror gallery to function. Probably would be fun to revisit at some point in Commander, though. I'm thinking about it. And last but not least, from Infinitokens, says, We can't criticize the pun or we would be a Feldegriff's natural 20 roll. And it's from Magic Arcanum, says, They're a huge part of the Magic story, but the game itself doesn't X-plane, P-L-A-N-E, doesn't explain them very well, so we thought with M21 hitting Arena today, this would be a great time to talk about Planeswalkers, and it says X-Plane-ing Planeswalkers. To which my response was, fine. <laughs> that one was bad even for me. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. You got questions, comments, concerns, refer to the social media a bit earlier. I love doing this, and I'm going to sign off the way I have been for the last pretty good while. Everybody's going through. There's a lot of things going on in the world right now. So remember when you're interacting with people, never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, sling some cardboard, be kind, and we'll catch you next week.